Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Jason Palmer, editor of Espresso, The Economist's daily briefing app. And you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's show... A new planet has been discovered, and it's not your regular icy cold or blazing hot mass of matter trillions of light years away. It's, in astronomy terms, just around the corner, and just possibly habitable. Coincidences very rarely happen in astronomy. If you find something like that very close to you, it tells you something much more profound about what's going on elsewhere within the galaxy. I think what it's telling us is that these types of planets are exceptionally common, and that, you know, that increases the probability of finding life elsewhere within the galaxy and within the universe. More about that later in the show. First up, facial recognition technology. The German interior minister this week is calling for new security measures at airports and train stations, including using facial recognition that identifies potential terrorists. With me to take a snapshot of this story is Tom Standage, our deputy editor. Now, Tom, you've been writing about this, and in fact, there's already an app that does this, isn't there? Yes, there's a Russian app, and it's called FindFace, and it's essentially like a search engine for humans. So I can take a picture of you, or I can get a picture of you from somewhere else off the internet, and I can put it into this app, and it can tell me who you are with about 70% accuracy. Now, the reason this only works in Russia is that it uses the database from a social network called Recontactor, which is kind of like the Russian version of Facebook. And unlike Facebook, where your profile page is a private page, page that can only be seen by your friends. On Vcontactor, it's completely public, so everyone on the internet can see it. So the people who built this app hoovered up all the pictures of the users of this network, about 200 million people. And that means that if you're on the the subway in St. Petersburg, for example, and you just point this app at a random person, it's got about a 70% chance of of figuring out who they are. And this has made lots of people go, ah, this is very, very scary. It is deeply creepy. Not only because you're going to just get creeps sending you, you know, I saw you in a bar last night. Uh, How about a drink? Which is one of the uses that the of the app are actually proposing. They're also suggesting that, you know, if your girlfriend dumps you and you want to find someone who looks similar, then you can find someone similar using this app. That's it's also, even creepier. It is. Or someone who looks like a film star. You know, I really like this film star, so I'd like to find a girlfriend who lives near me and looks like that. And then I can, like, send her a random message. Uh, well, look, Facebook already can identify me and friends you know, sort of tagging in, in photos. What's, what's to stop them doing exactly this? Nothing at all. So the interesting thing is that Facebook has decided not to deploy this. So there are some facial recognition features on Facebook. Facebook, when you upload a photo, it will sometimes suggest to you who the people in the pictures might be. Now, that's actually quite a lot easier than what FindFace is doing because it assumes that they're your friends or your, the friends of your friends. And it also doesn't do this in all jurisdictions. So in, uh, in Europe, the facial recognition features in the Facebook app and on the Facebook website are deliberately downgraded because they may violate a privacy law in, in Ireland in particular. And also the Germans, funnily enough, are quite worried about uh, the privacy implications of this sort of thing. And they tend to cry wolf before other countries in Europe. So it's interesting that the Germans are 
are now looking at potentially using this technology. Obviously, they're very concerned after a spate of terrorist attacks in Germany. But the, if the technology really is that good, that you can identify random people walking down the street, and we've seen in Russia that that is the case. So a couple of arsonists were identified from CCTV footage using FindFace. The Moscow police have licensed the software so they can spot people walking down the street. Obviously, we've got lots of cameras all over the place across Europe. So you couple it with that technology and potentially wherever you go, a machine can figure out that it's you. So the, the Moscow police have licensed the very same software that's in FindFace. Yes, that's right. So the, the actual engine was created by a startup called Entech Lab, and they've built this facial recognition engine. And that's what powers FindFace. And that's what they're licensing to other people. They also think it could be used for marketing. So the idea is that you go into a shop and, you know, you hang around in front of a, a new computer and then you don't buy it. And then they can figure out that it was you and then they can start retargeting you on on the on the web saying, hey, what about that computer you didn't buy? Or you go into a shop and it can figure out what you bought in the past and what, what offers they can make you. They think this is brilliant. And, and I think most people would look at it and go, that sounds really scary. And the annoying thing is that in the past, if you wanted to avoid this kind of tracking, you could delete the cookies on your computer or use a, an incognito tab or not use a smartphone or turn your smartphone off and all this sort of thing. And what this does is it takes the tracking of people moving around to a place where you can't avoid it by not using technology because you can't stop using your face. Start getting your mask made now. So we've talked a lot, well, in, in this studio and certainly in the, in the paper as well, about the, the perils of AI and so on and, and kind of talking about it in a future sense and will will the robots take our jobs and so on. But this is kind of a much more near-term concern, isn't it? Yes, exactly. I mean, when people worry about the sort of the ethics and the social impact of, of AI, of which machine learning, which is what this system is, is based on, is a part, is that we tend to think about, about it as either job losses or sort of future Terminator scenarios where the, the robots go bad and, and sort of start killing the humans. And this, I think, is a reminder that this isn't theoretical at all, and that actually this technology exists now and is having a surprising impact right now in Russia, and maybe it will in in other countries too. It's only because the Western tech firms have chosen not to use the technology in this particular way that it hasn't happened elsewhere. Thanks for bringing us that story, Tom. Please do show your face on Twitter and Facebook. You can find us at Economist Radio or send us an email at radio at economist.com. On last week's show, we talked about hybrid cars and their electrical systems. Perhaps the most interesting comment we received about the show was on Facebook from Arthur Interst. He says, Every time I read these articles, I laugh. I have unlimited energy. I run my house and my car with a gravity generator. It uses the natural rotations of the Earth to charge my car and my house and is fantastic. Super easy to build. Just Google it. Sounds suspiciously like a perpetual motion machine to me, Arthur, but I have to admit... I won't be able to resist Googling it. This week, astronomers have found a new planet. You might be thinking, and rightly so, what's so special about that? Don't we find new planets all the time? We do, but not planets like this one. It's orbiting the nearest star to our solar system, Proxima Centauri, and might be a lot like planet Earth. Here's co-author on the planet-finding study, Richard Nelson of Queen Mary University of London. It's discovered by a technique known as the radial velocity method, so... The interesting thing is that when a planet goes around a star, the gravity from the planet causes the star to wobble backwards and forwards. And we can detect that wobble of the star because as the star moves towards us, the light that it emits turns a little bit blue. And when it moves away from us, it turns a little bit red. We call that the Doppler shift. And so we're able to measure that Doppler shift. And by measuring it, we're able to infer the presence of a planet going around the star. And how far is nearby? The star itself is about 4.25 light years, so if you were to fire a laser beam at this system, it would take 4.25 years to get there, 
And if you were to have a reflecting mirror at that side, then it would take another 4.25 years for the for the reflected light to get back to us. So it's, in terms of astronomical terms, uh, extremely close to us. But in earthly terms... Heck of a long way. <laughs> yes, a very long way indeed. So what is all the fuss really about? We're very excited about it for a number of reasons. Number one, it's orbiting the nearest star to the solar system. So in terms of making follow-up observations, it becomes very accessible. Number two, it appears that the planet has a relatively low mass, uh, very similar to the Earth, just about 30% more masses than the Earth. So that raises some very interesting possibilities about you know, what the object m- may very well be like, what it's made of. And you know, it's also uh, orbiting in the habitable zone of the star, which is the region around the star where we believe that liquid water could exist on its surface. So that raises all sorts of questions about the possibility of life on the planet. So in not just its proximity, but there's something very exotic about the planet in terms of its habitability, which makes it even more exciting for us. So it could be habitable, but Professor Nelson is not so sure about the likelihood of little green men. Though the new planet has tantalizing similarities to our own, there are variations that may mean the difference between life and death. On this planet, a year only takes 11 days, and that means it's orbiting very close to its star. A combination of high-energy radiation and stormy space weather make it unclear whether there's even an atmosphere. But for Professor Nelson, we can't just brush it off as a coincidence. Coincidences very rarely happen in astronomy. If you find something like that very close to you, it tells you something much more profound about what's going on elsewhere within the galaxy. I think what it's telling us is that these types of planets are exceptionally common. And that, you know, that increases the probability of finding life elsewhere within the galaxy, within the universe. Though we won't be making first contact anytime soon, I'm sure Star Trek fans can't help but dream. Now, the first question that occurs to me is, and I imagine to everyone else, is how are we going to examine the planet more closely? With me to talk about that is Oliver Morton, our our briefings editor. Ollie, how are we going to learn more about this thing? Well, the first thing people are going to do is look at it with telescopes, probably very big telescopes on the Earth, maybe also space telescopes. But there is also this extremely far out but not completely impossible idea of, uh, of, of sending spacecraft to it. And the thing to remember here is that spacecraft have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You, know, you can now do things with what are called CubeSats, which are just you know, sort of like 10 centimetres on a side. You can do all sorts of things that used to take satellites the size of a truck with satellites the size of a fridge or a keg of beer. And that trend could go a lot smaller. There are people who... There's a lovely guy called Zach Manchester who makes sprite satellites, which are just sort of like four grams or so. They could get smaller still. And if you can make a satellite really, really small and attach something called a sail to it, which is just a thin piece of plastic, and then shove it really, really hard with an extremely large laser, you can move that spacecraft at really quite a lick. And there's a, a Russian billionaire, Yuri Milner, who's very taken with this idea and is arranging research to look into the possibility of what he calls a star shot like this. And a planet around Proxima Centauri is a great shot in the arm for the Starshot because it means, yeah, there's something you could really go and look at that is, quotes, only, close quotes, four light years away. And so if you can get to a quarter the speed of light with your extraordinarily powerful laser and remarkably impervious little starship, then you can get there in just a couple of decades. So the way of getting into space hasn't changed, though, just big pipes packed with propellant. But, but what about the rockets themselves? Have they changed? 
Rockets are changing a bit in the two ways this is happening. I mean, one is the, the one that gets an awful lot of press is that Elon Musk makes rockets now and Elon Musk's rockets are cool. And this is undeniably the case. I watched one launch and much more impressively land from Cape Canaveral. And yes, they are extremely cool. And they are probably a good bit cheaper than the opposition. But there's a limit to how big the market is for even really cool rockets as long as if they're very big rockets. So the other thing that's happening in space launch is tailored rockets designed for the needs of people who want to launch a handful of small satellites, but they want to do it next Tuesday. And a whole lot, number of entrepreneurial companies uh, like Rocket Lab or um, Virgin Galactic looking at different ways of doing this. I mean, I think all told there are dozens of companies looking at that sort of thing. So you're seeing innovation at all sorts of, uh, at all sorts of scales. And obviously, we'll, people will concentrate on, for instance, an even bigger Falcon rocket that Mr. Musk is going to provide us with soon. But you mustn't forget these small, little, nifty, mobile, very very mission-focused rockets that are powering a lot of small set business. But if you look at a lot of the, the research that's going on here, a lot of the, uh, the big ambitious efforts, you've got Yuri Milner, you've got Elon Musk, you've got Richard Branson uh, with Virgin Galactic. This is, this is a whole bunch of billionaires. Is this a, a sustainable business model we're talking about for, for kind of long-term efforts or is it just billionaire boys' toys? There's a very big grey area between business model and boys' toys in the, in the space realm. Yuri Milner is just funding scientific research. He really doesn't expect to make money out of going to Proxima Centauri or detecting alien radio signals. Elon Musk is making money with SpaceX, but he's not. that's not the whole purpose of SpaceX. The purpose of SpaceX for Mr. Musk is to set up a colony on Mars. That's one of the reasons why he said he's not going to take SpaceX public, because he doesn't want a lot of shareholders saying, Mars, Mars, what are the quarterly results? And Jeff Bezos at Amazon is another interesting example of this. He has his own little rocket company. Actually, it's not that little. He has a vision of space becoming a big part of humanity's industrial ecosphere. And he's not doing this purely to make money. He's doing it because he's one of... There's a lovely phrase that uh, was the title of a film a few years, a documentary film, and some of these people used to describe themselves the orphans of Apollo. These are kids who watched the moon landings and thought, what's next? What's next? And now they're 40 or 50-year-olds who think, well, whatever was next, it didn't happen, but I happen to have a lot of disposable cash and I can make things happen. And some of them work on the very big level, like Elon Musk. Some of them on smaller levels, like people building little private spaceships to go to the moon, which is unheard of five, ten years ago. You seem pretty excited by all of these prospects that we've been talking about here. I have to ask, are you an orphan of Apollo? I suppose I am. I remember seeing the TV pictures and not fully understanding the difference between that and Star Trek, but knowing that they were both pretty important, cool things. Is there life out there in space is, in a way, the question of could we be alive in space? And so the two things really link up, even though people won't be going to Proxima Centauri, even with Yuri Milner's best efforts for a very, very long time. Well, thanks for linking all of that together for us, Ollie. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Jason. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read Oliver's special report on space technology, do pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist in print or see it online. For Tom's piece on facial recognition, get hold of our recently started sister magazine, 1843, named after the year The Economist was founded. It's a magazine about ideas, culture, and lifestyle. I'm Jason Palmer. In London, this is The Economist. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.